you have to work a little harder to stay connected to people. But on the flip side, it also gave us an opportunity because of the pandemic, you know, a positive that came out of it is that, you know, people, executives, um, you know, younger generation, people were more accessible because we were working from home. Zoom, you know, whether you love it or hate it, you know, Zoom has, has changed the world. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Aria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering the world of theatrical exhibition. Here with our co-host, Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro. In this week's episode, we are going to be previewing this weekend's box office with the release of Bullet Train from Sony hitting theaters and also looking at what we can expect from those holdover numbers from the other films that are on the market this week. In our feature segment, I'm going to be interviewing Melanie Valera and Jeff Wilk, two of the executive board members of Film Row, an affiliate of the Will Rogers Motion Pictures Pioneers Foundation that champions philanthropic endeavors while also providing personal and professional growth opportunities for the entertainment industry leaders of tomorrow. But let's get this week started. Rebecca, you're back from Orlando. You were there last week for the National Association of Concessionaires Convention. Uh, how was the week and what were some of the big highlights from, from that event? You know, and, and anyone who regularly listens to this podcast know I'm a, I'm a huge fan of snacks. Just from that perspective, it was really great. You know, I, I was really... Um, affected by the passion that, that, that the people who attended the show, the vendors had for this community. It, it's really one of my favorite trade shows that I've been to so far. Um, you know, some of the same issues came up that we've been discussing over these last few years. The transition to cashless, the need to expand menu items versus maybe the need to contract some of those menu items as a result of supply chain issues. Um, you know, you heard a lot from different sides of the industry on how these issues are being tackled. We went, did go a little bit more in depth than you're able to at a more general conference. A lot of discussion going on about the ways in which the concessions industry needs to adjust and the way to do that most efficiently. It's always an interesting opportunity to speak with our colleagues at FNB uh, because it's as we've discussed, such a large part of the industry and one of the most quickly evolving parts of the industry with mm -hmm. expanded menus and alcohol service. Yeah, we did see a lot of companies that um, are interested in breaking into the cinema space as cinemas. And of course, the NEC conference isn't just about cinemas. It's about other concessions venues as well, but just speaking on cinemas. Yeah, a lot of companies interested in moving into that space. The cinemas look to expand their menus and Though granted, not so much on the concession side, just conversations happening around the show, continued interest in family entertainment centers and expanding to those uh, bigger venues that can have cinemas, bowling, arcade games, bars and restaurants. It's really interesting seeing kind of the, the evolution of where this industry is, is going, kind of being sussed out in real time. Always good to see companies wanting to get involved in the cinema space, especially as we get out of this crisis, give moviegoers more options uh, at the concession stand when they go to the movies. And they'll need those options for the coming weekend because we've got two movies opening, Rebecca, two wide releases, very different genres. In the action <laughs> genre, we've got Bullet Train from director David Leach opening from Sony. 
And from the comedy side of things, we've got Easter Sunday, a comedy from Universal and comedian Joe Coy about a Filipino family tradition. That uh, that trailer looked quite funny when we saw it uh, at CinemaCon earlier in the year. But unfortunately, here with our forecasting, it doesn't look like either of the films are going to be making much of an impact at the box office. Bullet Train actually is the one where we're pinning significant hopes on, Rebecca. We're expecting that movie to do between 30 and 40 million, around the mid-30s range on opening weekend. This is actually the only movie that we're expecting has a $100 million grossing potential in North America until mid-October. So we can consider this basically the end of the summer movie season of 2022. Unfortunately, I think the uh, the next week's releases that we have really going into September is really a mix between everyone's on vacation and kids are going back to school programming. This is the sort of summers that we used to have at the box office, let's say in the late 90s, early 2000s. It's a bit unfortunate that because of uh, COVID delays, the schedule is so affected in the coming months. So we're really going to be looking at Bullet Train, hoping that does between that 30 to 40 range so it can sneak up to become that $100 million grocer that we're expecting it to. And Daniel, what are your expectations for Easter Sunday? Um, I know you you liked the trailer at CinemaCon. I was not able to see it. I've been seeing posters and marketing for this thing all over the place. What are the comps for this? I think the ambitious comps here are titles like Trainwreck or like Crazy Rich Asians. I'm not exactly sure this film fits into that mold. And I know that our colleague Sean Robbins, as he's putting his forecast together, he's slightly less bullish because of that. I think this is a film that uh, we're expecting to open between 8 and 13 million. Unfortunately, we're not expecting this movie to cross 50 million. But like with all comedies, Rebecca, you never know what word of mouth is going to do for a title like this. I mean, it's not that long ago that Everything Everywhere All at Once came out. We didn't really have any comps that could fit in for it. That movie's now made $68 million in North America. Here's a cool stat point. It's the first A24 title to cross $100 million worldwide. Everything, everywhere, all at once. A word-of-mouth hit that was able to overperform within that niche. Now, I bring that title up because that's really what we're hoping in a best-case scenario for Easter Sundays. It's not a title that we have huge expectations for, but we can be slightly surprised by. So we'll be looking at how that uh, performs next weekend with the new openers, because Mm -hmm. the opener from last week, Rebecca, uh, I mean, uh, number one finish for DC League of Super Pets, but it wasn't what we were expecting. Yeah, Daniel, DC League of Super Pets opening to $23 million. You know, and we're hoping even more for strongholds on this one, Daniel, because there's really not any major kid-oriented film coming out until Lyle Lyle Crocodile from Sony in October. I mean, this is the last kids movie for a while. Yeah, and I think this was a situation where the market was a little bit saturated with these titles. We saw movies like Lightyear not really perform to expectations. I think we can say the same thing about DC League of Super Pets. Uh, There were other titles, of course, like Minions, uh, The Rise of Gru, that did really well. And then that Paw Patrol movie came out during this period, also didn't perform very well. To put these numbers into context, Rebecca, we were expecting DC League of Super Pets 
to be a hundred million dollar earner at the box office, especially right now when we really need it uh, leading into this dry spell that we have in August and September. But that $23 million weekend actually came a little bit below the opening weekend of The Bad Guys, the animated Universal title that opened to $23.9 million back in April. That movie, Rebecca, hasn't crossed $100 million yet. Still around ninety-seven mm-hmm. million domestic. Interesting. That movie at the time that was a really good result for <laughs> the bad guys, given the studio, given the marketing, given the state of the world in April. That's right. It was something that we saw as a bright spot. But talking dogs at the box office, I just think is something that always works, no matter who makes this type of movie. Uh, unfortunately, that twenty-three million dollar weekend below expectations. If this inches towards that 100 million mark domestically, it's going to do so off the strength of word of mouth. An A minus cinema score from general audiences, but moviegoers under the age of 35 and female moviegoers both gave this movie an A cinema score. So it's a movie that's sitting with moms and it's a movie that's sitting with kids. If those two demographics keep on coming back to see this, we might have a shot at 100 million here as the holdovers continue. Uh, An interesting set of locations, actually, that came in in the top 10, Rebecca, with the South and the Midwest of the United States actually over-indexing relative to their share of population. Could you read that list of those top 10 locations that we got from Warner Brothers? Absolutely. Uh, Coming in at the number one spot is the Harkins Estrella Falls in Phoenix, Arizona, which congratulations to them. Second, AMC Burbank. Third, actually, is the Santicos Casablanca location in San Antonio, which is one of that chain's family entertainment centers. So, I mean, I, I, I'm assuming you had a lot of families going in for movie, bowling, parents go to the bar to get a drink. Uh, number four, we actually have a drive-in in Cape Cod, the Wellfleet. Then an AMC in L.A. and an AMC in Disney Springs, Orlando, which actually was the kind of shopping center literally right outside the NAC convention. So I walked past that like multiple times a day. That's actually the Cape Cod of John Vincent Jr., the head of the Drive-In Theaters Association, who's been on this podcast a number of times. Congratulations, John. Huge result to be in the top five of all theaters on opening weekend for this film. Right. Number four. I've beaten out a couple AMC locations. Um, And then at seven, there's a Cinemark Tinseltown in El Paso, another AMC in L.A., then an AMC in Nashville and a Cinemark in Houston. So, uh, you know, a a good uh, a good chunk of uh, attendees from the southeast, southwest, uh, as always, Los Angeles. But, yeah, it's neat to see uh, that drive in and uh, the Family Entertainment Center represented on that list. And some of those theaters in Texas, you mentioned Houston, Mm -hmm. you've got San Antonio, you've got El Paso. It's a Mm -hmm. nice little diversity there. So it's unfortunate that this title couldn't really be the hit we had hoped on a national level. But on a regional level, it's still important to have these Mm -hmm. movies hit theaters because they help specific audience pockets throughout the country. We've heard it from John Vincent of the Wealthly Drive-In before that those family titles for the drive-ins in this country are super, super important. The drive-ins are such a family movie destination these days. So I'm glad to see him in that top five. And we'll continue tracking the performance of DC League of Super Pets in the coming weeks, because as Rebecca says, there's no other family titles on the calendar until October 7th's debut of Lyle Lyle Crocodile. In second place, uh, we had Universal Snope 
I think it had a very uh, Spielberg summer blockbuster vibe to it. Of course, the mm-hmm. horror elements a lot more pronounced in uh, in Jordan Peele than they are in in Spielberg. Maybe early Spielberg was a little bit more horror friendly, you know, as he was coming out of Jaws, having produced movies like Poltergeist. But this really E.T.'s felt... e. e. scary. I'll exactly. I'll... Absolutely. And you know what? This movie felt like one of those 80s Spielberg movies, those 80s summer Spielberg movies. I say that both as a positive and as a negative uh, for those people mm-hmm. that like or dislike that sort of title. It, but it had a little bit more of an edge to me than, than Spielberg does. And that might be because, you know, Spielberg removed by those early films from several decades and they become kind of canonized in our heads. But, you know, I, I don't want to put Jordan Peele in that hole of he's the new Spielberg because that's that never works out well for anyone <laughs> if, if that if that's the narrative that's put on you. I'm interested to see what, what happens with Peele's uh, future, because this movie, we talked about it last weekend. It opened in that mid-40s range. That was fine. You know, we, we were expecting something like that. We said it at the moment. It was going to rely on that word of mouth. We weren't really going to know what this performance was going to be like until we saw that second weekend drop. Unfortunately, the second weekend drop for Nope is bigger than the second weekend drop for mm. us. It's a 58% drop in its second weekend. That's an $18.5 million haul here in North America. I, I was telling, I, ma- I made friends with someone on the way home from NAC. We were uh, both trying to get on standby in a flight and we, we failed. So we hung out and I tried, to, I, can, I tried to convince her to go to Nope. I did my word of mouth part. <laughs> That's all it takes sometimes. Just a well-timed recommendation. But uh, yeah, that $175 million benchmark that we've had with Jordan Peele movies here domestically, looking a little bit out of reach now. I think it's fair to say this is going to easily cross the $100 million benchmark, but likely won't hit the heights of either us that did $175 million or Get Out that did $176 million, both those movies. Creating a set of expectations maybe again, unfair. Sometimes uh, what we expect from these exciting filmmakers is a disservice to them. And we should really just give them the opportunity to get a little bit crazy, a little bit wacky. And uh, nope, I can definitely say wasn't the movie that I was expecting to see when I walked into that theater. But I walked out of that theater really happy to have seen a filmmaker like Peel mm. go in a direction that I wasn't expecting. So we'll see where this weekend ends up here with both Bullet Train and Easter Sunday opening against these holdovers here in the domestic market. Uh, I got to tell you, after interviewing uh, David Leach for our website and magazine, Rebecca, I am looking forward to seeing what happens in, in Bullet Train this weekend. Well, I know when we got the opportunity to do that interview, you, you, you jumped on it. What were the insights that you pulled from your interview with him? I'm a big fan of the action genre. I think mostly growing up in Mexico, a lot of the films that played in bus rides or on television ended up being action films. And over the years, I think the, the genre has suffered with the aesthetic of comic book films that mm. has really brought an inconsistency to fight choreography. Many times you have these action-oriented films that have to do more service to an IP rather than to the fight choreographers and stuntmen that really breed life into these sort of movies and breed life to this genre. And I think David Leach is an exception to that, a former stuntman himself. Uh, he co-directed that 2014 title, John Wick, that I'm a very big fan of. But I actually think, Rebecca, his best movie is 2017's Atomic Blonde I love with Charlie Theron. Have you seen that movie? 
I really love it. I, I, I read the scene where they're fighting up the stairs and you can tell they're both just exhausted. You know, I feel like action movies tend to, you know, they go from one extreme to the other. One extreme being, uh, you know, really dynamic, super fast cuts. And then the critique of that is, oh, we'll just kind of plop the camera down and let the fight go on. And neither of those quite works. You got to find that that middle area where you're showcasing the uh, the action and the choreography, but you're also not being boring in how you, it's the John Woo sweet spot. And so few people get it. Absolutely. And I think, uh, as you can tell from these sort of movies, the action films that probably most appeal to me are those made from that Hong Kong school of action cinema from the 1980s, from the 1990s. John Wick is very much in that vein. Atomic Blonde departs slightly from that. And then the other David Leach movies, I think, are quite interesting because he goes into making a superhero movie and a big branded IP film, Deadpool 2. And he makes uh, the Fast and the Furious spinoff, Hobbs and Shaw. And David Leach is a filmmaker, as an action filmmaker, uses different aspects of the action genre in exploring his fight choreography for those films. Uh, in the ways that are still engaging. In my interview with him, I remember asking him and how he adapts his approach to the genre depending on the type of film. He told me about his experience doing fight choreography for James Mangold's uh, Wolverine. Did you watch that movie where Hugh Jackman is in Japan as the Wolverine, one of those That was one that films? was surprisingly good. I didn't love it, but I still remember that, that fight scene on top of the bullet, on top of the bullet train. There you go. That's a great example of uh, what David Leach said he wanted to bring in into Bullet Train. He wanted to make a movie where the environment played such a role in dictating how he would choreograph the action. Having limitations so that fight choreography would work within the environment. And within that, it brings a specific sort of tone, a tone that I think appeals to both of us, the Jackie Chan movies. Jackie Chan is the sort of movie star that within his action films really use the environment and limitations to produce comedic effects. And Bullet Train is a film in that mold. It's a film that tries to be an international blockbuster adapted from a best-selling novel uh, that was based in Japan. David Leach, in his approach to that book, instead of making a movie about Japan with Japanese characters, he wanted to bring in a more diverse and international flavor a different take to that source material. And the effect is this very cosmopolitan film with action set pieces that I think will bring to mind those limitations, those comedic elements that I think audiences can associate with those Jackie Chan films. I'm really excited to see Bullet Train. And I got to tell you, in the world of films with fights in trains, you've got the high watermark of From Russia With Love, the James Bond movie. This is a movie that <laughs> wants to rival those iconic fight sequences. So I'm excited to have audiences catch this on the big screen. It's always good to have these big screen spectacles in the summer, especially the dog days of summer, Rebecca. If it's not the movie that takes you to the theater, maybe the air conditioning will. I think that's fair to say is we're sweltering here in our New York City apartments. Daniel, with the summer movie season now kind of behind us, uncertain future for Q3 and Q4. We have some big titles out. And indeed, that the future of that industry is something that is the main concern of your feature interview this week. Yeah, I think that's a great way of framing this conversation that I had with both uh, Melanie Valera and Jeff Wilk from Film Row, which is uh, an offshoot of the Will Rogers Motion Picture Pioneers Foundation that is really organized in engaging young 
in both distribution and exhibition, and also the vendor community that I guess we're a part of here doing trade journalism. It's a really cool program, really cool ideas. I don't want to spoil too much of it. I'll let Melanie and Jeff uh, describe it in their own words. So without further ado, here's my interview with Melanie Valera and Jeff Wilk from Film Row. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast for our feature interview with two of the founding members of Film Row, an affiliate of the Will Rogers Motion Picture Pioneers Foundation that champions philanthropic endeavors while also providing personal and professional growth opportunities for the entertainment industry leaders of tomorrow. Here in today's episode, we've got Melanie Valera, the founding president of uh, Film Row. She's now the executive chair there. She is also the VP of sales distribution at Paramount Pictures. And another one of Film Row sounding members, Jeff Wilk. He is the current president and also serves as the SVP of theatrical innovation and distribution services at Warner Brothers. Guys, Welcome to the podcast. Let's get started with this interview. Uh, Film Row, I, I love the organization. I think I've mentioned it in the past when we had uh, Christina Bloomer, the new executive director from Will Rogers here on the podcast. Not too long ago, I attended a networking event uh, from Film Row while I was at Show East in 2019. It was a great opportunity to reconnect with executives, reconnect with folks here in the industry. And a great resource, I think, for young people just entering the industry. Uh, let's get started with how this entire concept began. Melanie, you were the organization's first president. How did you get started with Film Row? Thank you, Daniel. Nice to uh, nice to be here today and very excited to talk about Film Row. So this has been a labor of love um, for years. We put a lot of um, a lot of passion and blood, sweat, and tears into this project, and it's been really, really rewarding. We started back in uh, 2019, March of 2019. So Todd Vradenberg, who was the former executive director at Will Rogers, and Christina Bloomer, who's now the current executive director at Will Rogers, had approached me and, and a group of others within the industry to form this group and put something together. And, and basically, they gave us kind of carte blanche to say, you know, put something together you know, we want to encourage and engage um, our industry and and find a way to connect to one another. And so we kind of ran with it. And it has been take it just took off from the beginning. I've been in the industry about 20 years now. I started with Deluxe and I've always been big in philanthropy and all of my all of my mentors and peers mentioned that there's a couple great uh, organizations out there that I should try to work with. So I went from attending to the event mostly on the networking side, got to meet a lot of great people. And over the course of my career, I went from, you know, attending the events to help planning the events. So I came knocking, I got to know uh, Todd Vradenberg, the old director of Will Rogers at the time. And every, you know, we, we got close and every couple of years I would say, hey, I want to get more involved at the, the leadership level of Will Rogers. What can I do? And he kept saying, your time will come. You're kind of, you know, be patient, keep doing what you're doing. Your time will come. So he came knocking on our door, my, myself and Melanie Valera, who was the, the first president of Film Row a couple of years ago, and said, look, when it comes time for, for your generation to take the reins and lead, Will Rogers, we're finding that you haven't had the experience and you're put in these roles and not really sure what to do. So we want to start more of a junior organization that can help prepare yourself, essentially a farm league for Will Rogers. And so we started, uh, we started Film Row with the focus on educating and and familiarizing that next generation of leaders to 
to know what to do. So when they got in those roles, they could really make a difference. The main focus of of Will Rogers, and it's, and it's on our website, it's kind of our tagline, is, is to help cultivate the next generation of pioneers and trailblazers in our industry. And our three pillars in which, in which we do that is education is first, second is philanthropy, and third is networking. So my goal is just, or our goal, is to focus on all that. Education, how do you get people, how do you teach people to you know, speak publicly? Something as simple as an Excel class, do a tastemaker series, Philanthropy. How do you volunteer your time? How do you make a difference? We've done, we've done food drives at the uh, LA food bank. We've done three of those now, and that's been fantastic. Networking. We've done cocktail parties. You went to the one at Show East, which was great. We did a rooftop one at the Mantelbaum, which was our, our kickoff party a couple of years ago, but it's in that order. The first is education, philanthropy, and then networking. And I really like that three tiered approach to be able to make sense of how this industry works, how this industry operates. Because really, it's an industry where folks stay for a long time. Melanie, Jeff, you guys have both been in this industry for two decades, and it still feels like you're new here. That's how ingrained some of the things are here in both exhibition and distribution, where you have multi-generational people working here, and their parents worked here, and so on and so forth. So it's a really great opportunity to guide folks of how this industry works. So Jeff, let's start with you. How exactly did you work in getting some of those insights, getting some of those perspectives from industry veterans and making them accessible to other folks just starting out in this industry. So we definitely want to tap into that that long-standing industry knowledge that you talked about. Like you said, you've had people lifelong straight. Some some people started as interns and 40 years later, they're still at the studio and they continue to grow or they're still with their companies. And like you said, multi-generational on the exhibition side, the vendor side, the studio side. So it's really important that we share that knowledge and we're fortunate where the executive board of Will Rogers, all those leaders have raised their hand and said, look, we, I want to help. I want to share my stories. I want to share the good, the bad, the ugly. I want to help that next generation because when I'm gone, I want the industry to be in a good place. So when we've had the the luxury really of these, of these leaders raising their hand and say, you know, we do these things called lunch and learns. And our first one was at Paramount Studio on the Paramount lot with Kyle Davis, the president of distribution at the time. And he brought in the room and the commissary and we had 20, I think we had somewhere between 15 and 20 people and he just opened it up and it's all, you know, it's, there's a couple prepared questions, but it's a very organic conversation and people that don't have exposure to executives like that. You know, we're talking about coordinators, managers, entry level people, all the way up to senior VPs of some of the other companies, but they've never had the FaceTime with someone like a Kyle Davies, who's been on different parts of the industry and different companies. So to have that ex- experience is shared really just, it means a lot to these people. And you take, you take these life lessons and, and you just continue to, to kind of uh, blaze your own path with them. But yeah, I think tapping into those, those, those very strong and uh, knowledgeable resources is, is, is very key. We also parlayed into our mentorship program. We're currently on our, our second round um, the first round, we had uh, 130 participants, 65 pairings, which was we were blown away with the response that we got. And the feedback afterwards has been incredible. It has been just truly amazing for both the mentors and the mentees. There's never been any sort of program like this that pairs people from different studios, from different exhibitor partners, the vendors. It's It's all about educating ourselves in different ways. And I think it's a really fulfilling program for, like I said, both the mentor and the mentee. And I think that, you know, we had to get also creative in this time because 
it, you have to work a little harder to stay connected to people. But on the flip side, it also gave us an opportunity because of the pandemic, you know, a positive that came out of it is that, you know, people, executives, um, you know, younger generation, people were more accessible because we were working from home. Zoom, you know, whether you love it or hate it, you know, Zoom has has changed the world. So, you know, jumping on these video conference calls and being able to connect with someone face to face maybe not in person physically, but that that kind of changed the landscape. So it's great that we were able to still move forward with this program in the middle of this pandemic and still feel connected. Um, so so that in that front, it was it was truly amazing. And the mentorship program, we're still right on par. We've actually had, I think we're over 150 participants on this round that we're currently in right now. And uh, we've gotten more engagement. We've gotten other people who who've reached out to us and said, where do I sign up? This is something interesting. We're also trying to pull in theater managers. You know, part of this is is trying to educate um, those in the field. And that's um, another another way we can all connect to each other. So that's been super exciting. We've got quite a few theater managers who are participating in that program. So from the educational standpoint, I feel like we're really on par with the goals that we set out to achieve. And, and then going into, you know, the fundraising aspect, we certainly are, you know, we're always trying to build a fundraising component into all of our events, even our social events, networking events. We had a, an in-person trivia night prior to the pandemic. And that was, I mean, who doesn't love movie trivia, especially in our business? So <laughs> we had quite the turnout. We had a great fundraiser. We gave the proceeds. We also try and do community outreach, but we gave the proceeds at the time there was um, the the L.A., the California fires that were going on. So we gave the proceeds to the California Community Foundation's Wildlife Relief Fund, which was great. And then we are also working with the L.A. Food Bank. We've done, I think, three of our um, day of services where we're, we're packing up um, food for, for those that are in need and that has been a great turnout too. And it's just something to give back to our community. And we also want to expand in that area too. So that's been really great. So both fundraising and, and networking, even, even you know, our, our rooftop event at Show East, which I think you might have attended, um, was a great fundraising event also. And, and we do give a lot of our proceeds back to Will Rogers to help those in need within our own business. And that was also something that, you know, we took a page out of Will Rogers' book. There, you know, a lot of what Will Rogers does is to serve this industry and to give back to those who who need us in this industry. And that's that's kind of what motivated us is let's give back to our industry through education, fundraising, networking, and let's let's further ourselves. Let's let's thrive. And it's a great resource to have, especially as we emerge from the crisis of the pandemic that we know has been as difficult for the studios as it's been for the exhibitors. In launching something like this, you always have to coordinate, you always have to get people involved. It's a little bit difficult because the concept is unproven, uh, especially starting not that long ago. Jeff, can you tell us how you guys were able to launch this program right before the pandemic? Melanie was really key in getting us off the ground. We worked really closely with Christina and Todd from Will Rogers and then with the executive board, but it was really her hard work, her tenacity, especially, you know, we started just before COVID and then when COVID hit, 
Uh, Phil Rome didn't skip a beat under her leadership. So it was just, how do we grow? How do we get our name out there? How do we define what it is we're looking to do? Yes, we're an organization for young executives. What does that mean? So it took events, learning lessons, different types of events, different initiatives, different people getting involved to really kind of fine tune where we're at. So yeah, that's uh, that's how it came about. And, and, and then through that, we've spawned off uh, other programs. You know, we have uh, a group called Lead, which spun out of Film Row uh, during COVID, which is one of the most amazing things I think that Film Row has done in addition to the mentorship program. So it's a constantly, uh, we're constantly learning and, and trying to experiment with new things. We have some great events. We've had some events where we've got, you know, a lot to learn and maybe shift focus on, but it's all, it's all part of the process. And what are the plans that you guys have for Film Row this year in 2022 and maybe next year, starting out in 2023? So we're actually trying to shape that now with the management change at Will Rogers. And then we, we try to time up our management structure as well, our board, uh, shortly after the Will Rogers mm -hmm. did. So we started, you know, towards the end of Q1 of, this, of 2022 with a new board. Um, and so we hit the ground running. Coming back, we were all excited to get out and try to do in-person events. So we try to plan you know, days at the LA Food Bank, what we call Cafe Azum, which is our virtual coffee where we get an executive. This last time we had Ryan Wood from uh, AMC do something. Um, we're a little limited. We try to do in person, but we don't want to slight anybody else that doesn't live in Los Angeles. So we're right now we're, we're, we're a little heavy on the virtual stuff, with, but which is great because you can you can appeal and you can, it can be convenient for a lot of people. But we're going to start to focus on more in person events, but also having some more of a, a virtual piece there. So um, we've done, we've done virtual talks. We recently had one with lead. We'll do an informational lunch and learn at one of our largest industries, largest vendors, deluxe, where people can go in and learn how, you know, films are finished, mastered and distributed to the, uh, to the theater. So I think we're just trying to round out, give everybody a more of a, uh, a broader look at the industry as opposed to what they do day in and day out of themselves. The idea initially was we start in LA because that's where, you know, the, the bulk of the industry is located. But I would love to see at some point us expand out into other territories within the country. I think it would be amazing if we could, you know, if we could launch different chapters. I think that's probably years down the road because we're still, you know, establishing ourselves at this point. But the engagement that we have from others in not only different states, but different countries. You know, we have people tuning in from Canada and we have people tuning in, you know, from Argentina and, and whatnot who are interested to learn about our program. And I think it would be so amazing to find a way, maybe there's a, a day of service that we all have a day of service and it's in different states or different countries. And it's the one day we dedicate to giving back to our communities. I think that would be truly amazing. I think it would be fantastic to have some of these events locally in some of these cities. Right now, the Lunch and Learns are locally in Los Angeles, which makes it difficult for others in the country. And, you know, the idea, as I mentioned behind it, was to have that intimacy with uh, an executive in a kind of a small room. We keep, we limit it to 15 or 20 people so that you can really get that personal attention with that high level executive. But I would love to see maybe that's something that travels or maybe that's something we've got other partners, you know, with AMC in Kansas City and and all these different companies and Bleecker Street in New York and, and all these different organizations that are throughout the country, Cineplex in Canada. And it would be just amazing to see the future of this group expand out within, you know, all aspects of our business. 
And Jeff, you are starting your tenure coming in as the new president of Film Row in place of Melanie that launched this and got this going. What appealed to you the most about joining this organization and stepping up as president? That it was a blank canvas, that we could do what it is we needed to do. And our leader at the time, Todd, and now Christina, every time we came to them with a problem, we're trying to we're trying to we're trying to figure out what it is we need to do. We've never been in these roles before. How do we do it? And every time he would ask a question, he'd just bounce it right back at us. I don't know. You tell me, what do you want to do? Which I thought was great. And we laughed because it was kind of the ongoing joke. So ultimately, the fact that it was a blank canvas and we could do what we want with it is, is amazing. We're not set in a certain structure. If we want, if we want to do an industry event where we're raising money, uh, for a charity, it doesn't have to go to a specific one. We did, uh, one trivia night a couple of years ago when we had the uh, the SoCal wildfires and we donated portions of that, but we can pivot to whatever foundation means anything, it means something to somebody. And we're not tied to just the executive uh, leadership, the executive board that we have, we open it up to the entire industry. So if you have a colleague who's passionate about, you know, helping the elder, we can do something around that. So it's ever, it's really a wide open, a wide open thing where we can go based on whatever people want to do. And for our listeners that want to get involved, how do they get in touch with you guys? How can they find out more about Film Row? Go to the website. Um, and if you're, in the, if you're in the industry, just reach out to one of us, send us an email. All, the, all that is on our Film Row website, www.filmrow.org. Uh, and you can see a contact us and you can see some a little bit more about our past events, our future events. Uh, we're also big on social, Instagram especially, at film underscore row Instagram. That's probably our most, uh, and we do an email list. You can sign up to to receive updates. But I think our most our most views are through through Instagram is how we communicate mostly to uh, to people looking to get interested. And that was Jeff Wilk and Melanie Valera from Film Row. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. And that wraps up this week's edition of the Box Office Podcast. The Box Office Podcast is produced by. Box Office Pro in collaboration with The Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. New episodes come out every Thursday. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and we'll talk to you guys next week.